Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. We're continuing our celebration of Audiophile's golden voices with extended interviews with our most recent picks. Today, I speak with Cassandra Campbell. We sit smoking, not looking at each other, smelling the human stink of the inside of a troop transport, the scorch of engine oil and aviation fuel. I wonder if they know who he is, this patient. Like I told you, it's all top secret. And believe me, the U.S. government is going to keep this one under lock and key for some time to come. It's a daisy, all right. That's Golden Voice Cassandra Campbell, reading Our Woman in Moscow, written by Beatrice Williams. Since Cassandra Campbell has narrated over 900 titles, choosing which book to open with, in fact, which books to talk about, was a daunting task. Cassandra is a golden voice for a reason. She is an oral shapeshifter. Her versatility, her characterizations, her emotional intelligence, and her resonant voice make her a sought-after narrator. She's at home in all genres, winning Audi Awards in both fiction and nonfiction. She's won more Earphones Awards than I have time to count, and she's perennially on Audiophile's best-of lists. She was inducted into the inaugural class of Audible's Hall of Fame and has been a Publisher's Weekly Best Narrator of the Year. Like many audiobook narrators, Cassandra Campbell came from theater. But theater was bred into her bones. Her father was a theater critic and her mother a drama teacher. Cassandra was acting on stage when life intervened and another world opened up. I was a theater actress, and then I had children, and, you know, I did mostly regional theater, and I lived in New York. And then I had a baby, and the, my actually when she was five days old, we took her up to the Berkshire Theater Festival, and I realized pretty quickly that the whole, you know, itinerant lifestyle that I was leading wasn't really going to work so well. And we ended up moving to Los Angeles, and I got a job teaching at the high school for the arts out here, where my son now goes. And one of my friends, Paul Bamer, was teaching there, and he was doing audiobooks. And I didn't really even know what audiobooks were. So I went to the library and took one out and loved the whole concept of it. And then I went to audition for Dan Musselman at what was then Books on Tape in Woodland Hills. And, you know, pretty much like immediately, I was just like, oh, I, I want to do this. This is so perfect for me because I've always been an avid reader. I was going to ask you what felt right to you about narrating audiobooks. You know, the funny thing is I just was like, okay, telling story. When I was teaching, I had adapted the Odyssey Homer's Odyssey for a cast of 50. I made a Greek chorus, and and I was really interested in the idea of creating plays out of stories that weren't necessarily written for theater. And so that, like, really appealed to me. So then when I realized that, that audiobooks was essentially doing that same thing, I just was like, oh, this is right where I need to be. I just really did connect with it, with the whole idea of reading a story out loud just immediately. I, I can't pinpoint it exactly except to say that, like, I kind of just knew what to do with it. I knew how to tell a story. And I'd always read out loud, you know, when my when I was little, I used to make my 
younger brother and sister sit and I would read them, you know, stories out loud. So it just made sense. I'm curious about what might have surprised you when you first started out narrating audiobooks. So there were a couple things. One was, you know, this funny thing. We were reading off paper back then, and I was so involved in the story that I would just turn the page without pausing in the sentence. And the director had to keep telling me, like, okay, when you get to the end of the page, you need to stop. Because I was so interested and I was so, like, into the whole process of telling a story out loud. And the other thing that surprised me was how exhausting it was at the end of the day. That was actually my next question. Like, does anything prepare you for that? No, nothing does. I mean, it's it's like doing, you know, three one-person shows back-to-back in a, in a single day. And also the intensity of it, the intense concentration of doing it, you just can't anticipate that in both, like, the best way and the most fatiguing way. Um, the best way because the book kind of tells you what to do. You know, you're leading it and following it at the same time, and that's just so involved in a way that's kind of hard to put into words, I guess. There's the sheer physical stamina, and then there's the intellectual and emotional engagement. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the physical stamina is interesting because it's motion in stillness. You you have to sit still, obviously, because you can't make a lot of sound that will cause you to have lots of pickups. But you have to kind of have this physical engagement. How do you prepare when when you're given a new audiobook? How do you get your arms around it? I always start with, and this is like a big thing for me, the tone of the story. When I'm reading silently to prepare a book, what I'm really doing is listening to the author's tone, listening for, like, what are the cadences of this story, hearing it in my head before I speak it out loud. Every author has a different voice. Every character has a different tone. And so I I, I think that's really the jumping off point for me. And do you use pages or, or an iPad and do you mark up? So I read off an iPad I don't make any marks on my manuscript. I don't. I like it to be clean. And so I I make marks on a separate piece of paper so that if I have a question or a pronunciation issue, that's like on a separate document. I I find it distracting. And, And everyone has a different technique, but I personally find it distracting to have a bunch of stuff written on the page because there's kind of a profluence in reading out loud. For me, you're building the story. And so I want to stop as little as possible. Obviously, if I make a mistake, I have to stop. But so when I'm preparing, it's a kind of a separate document. And so all the technical stuff is in one place. When do you begin to work on voices? And and why don't we take Where the Crawdads Sing as an example? And that's a coming-of-age story about Kaya, a girl who's been abandoned by her family, and she's raising herself in the North Carolina marshes. How did you begin to develop Kaya's voice? Yeah. You know, always for me, that is informed by what the author has put on the page. You know, Kaya has this whole story, right? She evolves over the course of the story from a child into an adult. And so 
you ha- I have to consider that. Like, okay, I'm going to start her here, but she's going to end up here. But then there has to be like a vocal through line for the listener so that immediately they know that it's her- that she's the one who's talking. And so, again, like I'll make notes about what the indications of character that the author has given me and just put those in a separate document, refer to them when and if I need them. But sometimes this thing happens where I'll make decisions about a character before I start voicing the book. And then when I start voicing the book, something else happens. And I really try to pay attention to that because it's more organic. It's not pre-planned. My theater teacher used to call it rehearsing the rehearsal. So the preparation is kind of like the rehearsal. But then when I get into the studio, if something else happens, most of the time it's more interesting. And so then I'll I'll kind of like make a note either just internally or on a page to kind of say, oh, yeah, okay, that character ended up being this. And I use a lot of substitution exercises in creating character, like having an image of a certain actor or a person I know who every time I encounter the character, I sort of imagine that person and trust that trust that that's that what's going to come out of my mouth is going to match that. Jody, the brother closest to Pa, but still seven years older, stepped from the house and stood behind her. He had her same dark eyes and black hair, had taught her bird songs, star names, how to steer the boat through sawgrass. Ma'll be back, he said. I don't know. She's wearing her gator shoes. The Ma don't leave her kids. It ain't in them. You told me that fox left her babies. Yeah, but that vixen got her leg all tore up. She'd have starved to death if she'd have tried to feed herself and her kids. She was better off to leave them, heal herself up, then welt more when she could raise them good. Ma ain't starving. She'll be back. Jody wasn't nearly as sure as he sounded, but said it for Kaya. Her throat tight, she whispered, But Ma's carrying that blue case like she's going somewhere as big. You know, the character of Kaya was so interesting to me because she was so vulnerable. It just ripped your heart out and at the same time so strong. And you had to convey that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, again, like that's in the writing, you know. And so my job is kind of just to follow that and let it take me as an actor where it wants to go. And when the writing, like the writing is so good that you can trust that that is is going to happen and it's really just about navigating each individual moment you know always with like the arc of the story in mind did you speak with the author delia owens i did not do you try i mean was that unusual do you try to connect with the author or do you do you step back it really depends oftentimes the producers and directors have contact with the author but not the narrator So every once in a while, like, I will have an author who wants to have contact and talk about the book a little bit. But nine times out of ten, that doesn't happen. I love it when I get the opportunity to talk to the author before I record because sometimes, you know, they have just a a certain idea of what they want or what they hear that then I can kind of try to incorporate. But often that's communicated to me through the director. 
I know the nature of your job is to narrate in different voices, but it is so hard to reconcile your voice in Where the Crawdads Sing to your voice in Kill the Father by Sandrone Dazzieri, which is an Italian thriller. That's a series that you narrate. Yeah. That was, it's way different. It's way different. And that has everything to do with tone. You know, I mean, the tone of those books is, you know, really propulsive and fraught with danger. And she, I forget the name of the main character, but what a great character. Her name is Columba. Yeah. And she's she's falling apart. You know, she, her life is falling apart. And then Dante is like, you know, this really, really interesting, difficult character. And so again, like I, I'm just following what they've put on the page for me and who they've created. And in some cases with those kinds of characters, the author has given it to you in such a vivid way that I feel like my job is to just figure out how to recognize that through the prose and then let that character do the heavy lifting. You know, those characters are so well drawn, I think. And so different from Crawdads, which has like a more lyrical, quieter, you know, you can kind of hear the the shush of the water in that book as a kind of tonal note. And she obviously knows that land so intimately. And, and you, yeah, you really do kind of feel the rhythm of that. Did you have to do a lot of research with Kill the Father and, and the other books in the series? I know you speak Italian, which is apparent by your pronunciation of all the names and all the places that pepper these books. Yeah, I'm always, always want to do any book set in Italy because it allows me to be transported to that place, you know. And they go to so many different places in Italy over the course of those three books. Rome has been declared a no-fly zone, and for now, air traffic has been grounded all over the country. Termini Station is also going to remain closed until further orders, and the metro will not be running until the bomb squad has completed the inspection. There was a moment of silence while those present did their best to digest the enormity of the situation. Italy had been transformed into a war zone. What did the terrorists use? asked the police official from before. The general gestured to a woman in a dark skirt suit. This was Roberta Bartone, of the Laboratory of Forensic Analysis in Milan. Bart to her friends. Colomba knew how good she was, but she hadn't expected to run into Bart here. Dr. Bartone, if you would, said the general. They are riveting. They're dark. They are so dark. You know, when I'm on my walking schedule and I'm feeling lazy I'm, and if I'm listening to one of those books, it's like, oh, no, I can I can push it. I can definitely push it and keep on and keep on walking because I have these rules where I will only listen to this book while I'm exercising. Because <laughs> yeah. it gets me to exercise and it keeps me going for my allotted time. And let me tell you, I did very well with these books. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, those are good books to move to because they are so action-driven. And he's such a good writer, and the translation is so good, too. Now, when you narrate a series like the Misfortune series by Janet DeLeon, you're determining voices for characters. 
over a lot of books and you have to keep track. Yeah, well, I'm actually in the middle of one of those books right now. And I love Gertie and Ida Bell. You know, I've done so many of those books now that I just I just know them. And sometimes with those books, I have to stop recording because I'm laughing because, you know, you get to kind of know their sense of humor and she sets it up in such a way that now I recognize where we're going to get, where we're going to end up. Like, it's really easy for me to kind of go, oh, yeah, this is where the button is on that joke. <laughs> but again, like, I do have a, a list. I keep, I have a notebook that has series notes in it. Um, and so I have a lot of stuff written down about even the minor characters in, the, in those books because they recur, right? And so I keep track of that. But, you know, okay, this is something that Dan Musselman said to me, who really was my mentor in audiobooks, and I'm, I'm always so grateful to him. But he said to me early on when I was doing audio that the characters reside not in your voice but in your head. And so those characters just kind of live in my head now. I, I know them. I can see them. They have a visual life for me, but also just like a really strong vocal life. So when I go back to those books now, I'm just like, oh, yay, I'm back with these old friends. <laughs> Gertie looked up as we approached. About time you two showed up, she said. I needed reinforcements. I held up the funnel cake. Give me, Gertie said. My mouth tastes like jet fuel. Since she was still wearing the claws, I tore off a piece and popped it in her mouth. She closed her eyes and chewed, then sighed. That was heavenly. Compared to jet fuel, I imagine a lot of things are, I said. You didn't have jet fuel in your mouth, did you? Idabel asked. Well, not jet fuel exactly, Gertie said. We don't have jets in Sinful, and I couldn't get anyone at the airport in NOLA to sell me any. Thank God, Idabel grumbled. Well, you seem to have such a good time with those books, and they're so fast-paced and playful. They're so playful and fun. Yeah, they really are. And those women are absurd, but that's what's great about them. Now, I'm curious about the way you feel at the end of a session, let's say, of a misfortune book as opposed to Our Woman in Moscow, say. Oh, yeah. Another really voicey character. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, I guess, the way anyone feels after they read a, a book a, a, in a different genre or a different style. You know, it does something different to you. Like, I love like the really deep, sad books, but when I do those, sometimes at the end of the day, I feel moved <laughs> and and like I've had a very cathartic experience. It's like you're saying about the exercising with with Sandra Dazieri is that you feel, you know, energized by it because it got has this propulsive energy. And so I do it is interesting that you know, you do have like a big reaction in any direction, depending on what you're narrating. You know, that kind of residual feeling of a book. Well, you narrated Our Woman in Moscow with Nicola Barber. Were you and she in touch about the tone, the pacing? Usually when, when, when there is a dual read or a multi-read, you're in touch and you share files with each other so that you can hear what the other person's doing. 
with the characters and so that you can kind of meet them or try to place the the character in this same general ballpark. But those are short snippets, you know, so you kind of have to just trust that the book as a whole is going to carry that. And those two women are having such different experiences, you know. So I had I had a, a very brief exchange with her on about the book. And what about a larger multicast production like The Help, which was truly a great listen, or more recently, Charlotte's Web, which won an Audi Award? I know you worked with the director, but was there interaction among the cast? So on, on The Help, you know, I did very a sm- very small piece of The Help, but I knew um, Bonnie really well. Bonnie Turpin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I actually directed Bonnie on the first half dozen books she ever narrated. And so I knew her performance. And, you know, so in that instance, it was pretty easy. In terms of Charlotte's Web, Kelly Gilday, who's an extraordinary director, directed that book. And she is so clear and knowing what needs to happen so that the whole piece has like a uniformity to it and 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 works as a piece. I've worked with Kelly on a, a whole bunch of books and she's just really sensitive to the whole process and she's really great at giving actors direction. So I just trust her completely. And I actually listened to that program and I I love it. It's just so delightful and there's so many wonderful performances. I was laughing out loud listening to it. It's so sweet. Do you miss the collaboration of theater? Um, I miss theater altogether. Yeah, I do miss it. Um, I, for a while, I was still working on plays here in L.A. with a Shakespeare company. But then it just got between being a parent and doing audiobooks. It just became too hard to do. I might go back to it at some point. I'm not sure. It feels at this point like such a daunting prospect compared to audiobooks. I bet. <laughs> You've narrated, it really is true, over 900 books. Yeah. My Lord. How do you choose? And is there a genre that you prefer? So I don't choose. I get chosen. And I feel like I've been really fortunate to get to do lots of really good books. And and in terms of genre, um, I hope it doesn't sound glib to say, but good writing is my favorite genre. Because I really do like all different kinds of books, and I'm not really a book snob. I love literary fiction. I love, like, heartbreaking stories. But really what I love is good writing, and that doesn't have to be, like, literary writing. It's just, you know, good stories well told. What do you do when you just don't like the book? I'm not asking for names, but you obviously have to figure out some way to perform it. Well, I mean, theater taught me that. You don't have to love the play that you're in. You don't have to like the character, but you have to find something in them to redeem them because you're there. And so that's what I do. It's not my job to judge the book. You know, I had an experience that I always I always talk about, which I had a series that I was doing and I was thinking about not doing it anymore. And then I read some reviews and I read this review from this woman who works in a factory and she 
said, these books keep her going, and she's so grateful for them. And I just was like, okay, good enough for her, good enough for me. So I try not to judge the material, and that really helps me. That's true. And then there are times where a book kind of just beats you up a little bit, and you have to serve the book, whatever the book is. You have to find your way into it. And that's when technique and training really, really helps you because you can rely on those tools to do the heavy lifting. One book, which I know you liked, that you narrated recently is Two Truths and a Lie by Ellen McGeeran, which is a memoir of sorts. Tell us about that book and why it moved you as much as it did. So I think she's a really terrific writer. And, you know, it's the the book profiles her experience of watching a, uh, I can't think of the word. Prisoner. Yes. Watching the execution, like being present at his death. And she was haunted by it. And it haunted her for years and years, even after she, she was a reporter. And then she became a, a PI. And the story kind of reverberated in her life and in her head, and eventually she tracked it down. And she's just like a really sensitive, smart writer, and she addresses the issue of capital punishment in a way that is so compelling. You know, she uses this story, this journey that she's been on with this execution that she witnessed to illustrate how sometimes we get the wrong guy and capital punishment isn't maybe the best solution for punishment. She's such a deft writer. and It was one of those books where when I got to the end, um, I just stayed in the studio for a little while, and I actually wrote her an email because I was so moved by her journey. It's a very personal story, but also a really interesting um, story about this whole system of incarceration and punishment. Yeah, it was a great combination of personal memoir and then a sort of a broader sociological picture. And that can be tricky to pull off. Yeah, and I just think she pulls it off so well. I, I think she's, you know, really, really thoughtful and, and sensitive. And I actually did get to talk to her on the phone, and we had a really lovely conversation. She's a really lovely person. It started here. In the winter of 1976, Walter Rhodes lived in this building. In apartment B, up on the right, second door in from the street. One afternoon around Valentine's Day, just after Taxi Driver hit the movie theaters and his heiress, Patty Hearst, was standing trial for bank robbery out in California, Walter took a call in apartment B from his friend Jesse Tafaro. Jesse asked if he could come crash with his girlfriend and kids for a few days. Walter said okay. And on about their third day here together, Walter and Jesse and Sonny and the children came out of apartment B, down this cement walkway, climbed into a red Ford Fairlane, and drove off. For Jesse Tafaro, that trip ended in the electric chair. I'm curious if narrating audiobooks has affected the way you read for pleasure. Yeah. So I don't read for pleasure anymore because I'm I'm very busy as a narrator, but I listen for pleasure because there's so many books that I don't want to miss out on that I'm not narrating. Like you, I listen when I'm exercising. And right now I'm listening to Hamnet. 
It's so good. Elle Potter is so good. She is Agnes. So that's how I get my my fiction fix. Cassandra, I know you've thought about this because there has been so much talk about audiobooks being lesser than print books, that listening isn't as enriching as reading. And I'd love to know your thoughts on this. Well, I think it's hogwash that that <laughs> listening is somehow less valid than reading because I, I'm sure that I'm not the first person to say this, but storytelling begins in the oral tradition. So the idea that somehow having the page in front of you is some is makes you more literary than not. I just don't buy into it. And also, like, sometimes I receive a story from a narrator and it it stays with you. It really resonates in you, it with you in a way that maybe a book on the page might not, especially in our very distracted world. But I do also love books on the page, especially but and I love and I love poetry. And sometimes there's a word or a phrase that I want to be able to look at. And, and if I listen to something and I want that, then I just buy the book. Yeah, I think it's it's just such a false argument as though they have to be in competition with each other. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, though. Sometimes people say, like, I'm reading this book, but they're not actually reading it. They're listening to it. And I actually found myself saying that about Hamnet the other day to a friend. I'm, like, I'm reading this book. I'm like, well, you're not actually reading it. <laughs> but... <laughs> But it doesn't matter. No, there's value in listening. A lot of value. I like doing both. I read a lot. I listen a lot. Tell me a story. I mean, just give it to me anyway. You know, give me a good story any way you can give it to me. And sometimes a performance can really elevate a book. Absolutely. Yes, I have found that to be absolutely the case. I wonder what advice you would have to somebody who's thinking about audiobook narration as a career? Um, I think it would be read, 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 read. Read and then practice reading out loud books that you pick from from the shelf at random. I used to have stronger opinions about what made good audiobook narrators, and, and I don't anymore. I do think, like, being curious about stories is really important. Having curiosity about books and listen. So I would, I, I would just say also listen. Now, you've done work as a director of audiobooks. Yes. And I wonder if that's impacted at all the way you narrate. Definitely it did. I learned so much from directing, and I studied it. I was really into it, and, and I studied And I would make notes for myself after a session about why something worked well and why it didn't. And I got to work with people like Bonnie Turpin and John Lee and Scott Brick, Kirby Hayborn, Roz Landor. And I learned so much from them about what's really effective and why. So I I, I did spend a lot of time studying it. And then... I listened to um, Barbara Rosenblatt, and I learned a lot from listening to her. She's such a bold storyteller. And also the late, great Katie Kellgren, who was my dear friend. Um, I learned a lot from her also. And then finally, Cassandra, along with your many, many other awards and honors, you've been named a Golden Voice by Audiophile Magazine, and I really would like to know what that means to you. You know, it was the goal. It was the hope. 
um, it's kind of the pinnacle of being recognized. You know, I, I it's such a huge honor, and it really does feel like a Lifetime Achievement Award of people saying, like, okay, you belong in this pantheon of narrators who are so, so skilled. I was so surprised and delighted and truly honored. It's just kind of like the pinnacle of recognition. And well-deserved. Thank you so much. You're welcome. The hours I feel like, I, you know, I've spent with the nuances of your voice. <laughs> <laughs> much to my pleasure. You know, Dan Musselman also said to me once that the human voice has more range than any musical instrument ever invented. And I just still think that's like so cool. I did not know that. And I love that. Right. It's so cool. Yeah. It's so that is cool. cool. Yeah. That's one of Audiophile's new golden voices, Cassandra Campbell. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Drop by audiophilemagazine.com and check out interviews, videos, and stories about all our golden voices. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.